that song. I, I know it's not a radio request hour, but I requested <laughs> Brandon to sharpen up on that song and sing it. This morning I'm preaching on a title, The Great Debate. Um, I'll share a little bit more why that title is applicable today. Um, just recently in the last few days, I got my copy of, um, of a new book that was just released by Larry Towton. And I have no idea who he was before I saw somebody's uh, Twitter mention this book, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. And how many of you are familiar with Christopher Hitchens? Probably some of the younger ones are. Um, and I got to reading some of the previews, so I pre-ordered it. I started it this week. Christopher Hitchens died about five years ago um, from esophagus cancer, but he was one of the champions of atheism, British-born, um, notorious for debating anyone. He would take on anybody to debate them about the existence of God. He was a crass, kind of crude person to just intimidate people. And so uh, Larry Towton took him up on that debate challenge. And after the first debate, they became friends. Really an interesting uh, friendship between a, a Christian apologist and a, I mean, a notorious atheist. And actually they spent time together after he got his diagnosis. And I'm not really sure if uh, Christopher Hitchens came to faith, but um, they had a great respect for each other, and, and at least uh, Larry Towton had a chance to minister to him and share the gospel with him. In fact, on one of their cross-country trips, uh, uh, Larry was driving down to Birmingham. He lives in Birmingham from uh, Washington, D.C., where he picked up Christopher Hitchens, and Hitchens was sitting there reading the gospel of John, asking him questions. So... Uh, and you've all probably heard about Bill Nye and Ken Ham's uh, debate and, and the classic ones of Richard Dawkins and John Lennox. And uh, I, I really don't like them. I, I, I probably haven't watched any of them all the way through because debates just kind of start grading on me because when people start yelling at each other, they lose me. So you already know that I've watched very little of the presidential debates. You know, the, the hollering and the yelling, I just like, ah, I can't handle this. But I, I'm not referring this morning to those kinds of debates. But we are in the midst of some remarkable debates. Let me just mention a few of them. Here's one of the debates. Whether or not a transgender person can use public restrooms designed for the opposite gender of what they are, he or she is biological. North Carolina just passed a law preventing transgender people, like a man who says he's really a woman, from him going into the same bathroom with your teenage daughter. Okay? Sounds kind of pretty good idea, doesn't it? But yet businesses threaten to stop doing business with North Carolina. And among them was the NFL's front office. The NBA threatened to remove their all-star game from Charlotte. This is the, one of the great debates. 
same-sex marriage. And you might think since the Supreme Court made a ruling that that debate is over with. It's far from over with. But the issue of marriage license to two women or to two men who want to be married. Great debate. The issue is not outside of the church either. We think that's just a political issue or social or it's reserved for judicial branches of our government, but it's seeped into the church. And what about tolerance? You speak out about transgender issues and uh, homosexuality and same-sex marriage and all of those things, and uh, you could be in danger of spreading hate speech. Did you know that? Just by disagreeing with it. There may come a time when a mayor of a large city will, will ask all ministers who preach that Sunday to send their notes to City Hall to see if they're speaking out against those issues. But wait a minute, I think that's already happened. That very thing happened in Houston, Texas, where the mayor called for all the pastors to turn in their transcripts of what they preach. We're not talking about Moscow. We're talking about America. So here we are. In places like Canada, it's already criminal for you to make some statements about certain issues. And it's coming to America. Even abortion. That debate continues on and rages on. Now, this is the starting point for this message. I'm going to take you to 1 John chapter 2 and 3 and 4. And we'll also look at chapter 1 briefly. Um, this is just a starting point because these debates that I just mentioned to you are not outside the church. They're now within the church. Some churches, some evangelical church. And when you hear the word evangelical, it kind of, I don't know what it means to some people, but here's what I think it should mean. Evangelical means a church or a person who believes that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, his blood atones for their sins, and they repent and turn to him, and he saves them. Not the church saves them, but he saves them. These are churches that preach the gospel, that preach that Jesus died and rose again, and that he, and he saves those who trust and put their confidence in him. Some of those churches have been swept up by the, by the arguments about homosexuality, about not making people uncomfortable by talking about sin. And even some leaders in some of evangelical circles have officiated at gay marriages just to show that they are not alienating anybody. And so that debate is now pouring into the church, and it's in the church today. But is that unusual for the church in church history? Are we just now at this point in our existence as believers in Jesus to deal with these kind of issues? And it's just something that's happened in these last days because the Lord is coming back. You think of the time that Jesus arrived in Israel. Judaism was supposed to be a reflection of the law of Moses and how the community of people who believe in Jehovah God is supposed to practice that faith. And yet it kind of like divided into two political systems. One that was Pharisees who was driven by authority and power and the Sadducees who were driven by wealth and elitism. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees both were against Jesus. Fancy that. 
that he brought an uncomfortableness to both of them. The Pharisees were those who looked down upon people as though they were lesser than them. The Sadducees were the liberal, wealthy people that really believed anything goes. They didn't believe that there was a heaven or hell. They didn't believe that there was any kind of accountability to God. Can you imagine people who said they believe in the Old Testament who, that can come to those conclusions? Probably we can say, well, it makes sense how people come to conclusions today because they did it that, in that time. Jesus said he came not to destroy the law of Moses, not to destroy the Torah, but to fulfill it, to bring that law to a higher level of value that it's not just what you do in activity, it's the posture of the soul, the heart. And when he died and rose again, and on Pentecost, the church was birthed with fiery tongues sitting upon people's heads and a rushing wind and before that morning was over, 3,000 pilgrims inside the city were miraculously converted to this risen, resurrected Savior. And you would think, well, the church was not going to have any more problems because they were birthed out of this fire and out of this greatness of God. But that's not even close to what happened. I want to take you to John 1 because the first generation of Christians, Christ's followers were persecuted, but they were fire-baptized witnesses that confronted. Listen, and, I, and I'm going to just speak to us a little bit today, not a political thing, but they were willing to confront everything that challenged their faith, everything that would erode the foundation of their faith. And they were willing to challenge that at their own cost. When you read Paul's writing to the the believers at Colossae, especially chapter 2, you get the sense that he's challenging something that's threatening that believer group. And when you read John, the three short epistles of John, especially the first one, you kind of get the idea something is up here. Something's going on. This, the language that he uses. In fact, just look at the opening lines of 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life, a reference to Jesus. The life appeared, Jesus appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you, the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us in the person of Jesus. Verse 3, we proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we write this to make our joy complete. This is some of the most unusual sentences that you'll see. Absolute dependence on the witnesses. He says, we are there, we heard him, we heard him speak, we were in the audience when Jesus taught. We heard him. And he even said, our own eyes, we saw him. And if that wasn't enough, 
What's the most famous person you've touched? Jesus. <laughs> he says, but we touched him. Why would he go to that extent to say he was a real person? We looked at a real person. We heard a real person with our ears, with our eyes. And not only that, we could touch him. We could say unequivocally that he is a real person. Why would John start that letter like that? We're going to read some more things on down in chapter 2 here in just a moment. Because there was heresy and error infiltrating the church that was threatening the reality of Jesus. And that error was called Gnosticism. Now, I'm going to put up a slide here as to what Gnosticism was about. It was part of the Greek philosophical mystery religion system. And so it was, can I just tell you, it was highbrow. It was people talking about a lot of things that didn't make any sense. In other words, their idea was all matter, all physical matter is evil and the only thing that's good is the spirit realm, but who knows what's out there? But the way you figure out what's out there is through your knowledge. So if something pops into your head, that's valid. And so the philosophers and the educators started making inroads into the fabric of Christianity to try to absorb Christianity because it was syncretic. It was like, we just synchronize with whatever's going on. We just blend in with whatever. And Christianity can become part of Gnosticism. And you can see on there what Gnosticism denied. They denied the existence of the biblical person, the infinite God. They were against monotheism. There's just too many gods out there in the spirit world for it just to be one. They denied the Trinity, of course. They denied that Jesus is both divine and human. In other words, they denied the incarnation. They denied that he was anywhere near a Messiah. They claimed that Jesus was simply just another link in the chain of being, of just existence, of life. He's just, he's just another person. They denied that he died for our sins. They denied that he rose from the dead. They, re, they rejected the Old and New Testament, and they drew upon the Eastern ideas of, of uh, reincarnation that, that Buddhism dwells on. So the question is this, how could... Now, now, John is writing to confront this. How could believers start getting affected by this? Well, if, you don't, if you're not anchored in the truth, you can get affected by anything. If you don't know the truth, you can get affected by something that comes on that sounds good. Here were ideas challenging Orthodox Christianity, and it wasn't even the first generation of Christians was still around, including this apostle John. This is why Paul wrote to the church at Colossae saying, you know, you've got to be aware who Jesus is, that in him dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily, not in an idea. He wasn't a concept. He was a real person. Now, just follow this with me for a moment. Mind you, at this point, when John is writing this short epistle, it's around 85 AD, he's the last of the apostles. 
All the other apostles are gone. Almost probably all of the people, the 120 people in the upper room on the birth of Pentecost were deceased. So out of all the voices that could say, I was there, I heard him, I saw him, I touched him, John was the last one that could write this. And in his elderly days, he's confronting Gnosticism because it was making a serious attempt into who Jesus was. Let me take you to 1 John 2, 21, and you can take Gnosticism off the screen. That's enough of them, right? Look at verse 21. This is why you have statements like this. Remember how John starts his epistle. And, and, you know, we read these things and we read them and it's just like the Bible dropped out of the sky to us. This was just theology talking. This was just, he was just teaching people. No, there were real things going on. There was real challenges to the church. And John was writing because he saw the challenge. It wasn't like, uh, well, I'll just blow that off. They'll never listen to that. He didn't take that approach at all. And in 1 John 2, 21, he writes, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth. How about that? But because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. You remember in Romans 1 where Paul said that they traded or exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Well, there was this lie that was infiltrating the church, and John was saying, you know the truth, but lie will never come out of the truth. Who is the liar? Then where does the lie come from? Follow this. It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. <laughs> and remember what Gnosticism denied. It denied the centrality of Jesus, that he wasn't important to faith that he was just another person in the line of people who brought some good ideas and some good teachings. But he says, the liar is whoever denies that Jesus is a Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son, denying that relationship. Look at verse 23. It gets really clear here. No one who denies the Son has the Father. You cannot have one or the other. They both have to be believed in. He says, so whoever denies the Son, no one who denies the Son they, has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, watch this, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, what, what you've heard from us. If it does, you also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promises, eternal life. Watch verse 26. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Astray from what? Astray from what they've been preached to, the orthodox of the faith. And as for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. You do not need these people to enhance what I've told you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, he's talking about things that come in that's a counterfeit to the truth. And we read this, and we might say, what is going on here? 
The letter was to be circulated. This is not, you don't find this at the start of 1 John 1. That, uh, I'm writing this to specific groups of people. This was a letter to all believers, all the churches. It was to circulate among all the churches. Let me take you down to 1 John 3, verse 7. He says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. There is an attempt on the body of Christ to bring error into the community of faith. Just like there's an attempt today to use logic and reason to water down and diminish the things that we know that's true. And the things that we're challenged to, you know, if you, if you disagree with that person's lifestyle, you must be a person of hate. If there's anybody, any parent that loves their child, their son or daughter at all, they will discipline them. They will love them enough to go to the trouble to say, that's wrong. It's not a loving parent that lets their child do whatever they want to. In fact, the Bible says, if you do that, you actually hate your child. So when we are, are people of God, it's not hate. It's like we want them to know the truth. And the truth will set them free. If they're told a lie as though it is the truth, that God created them that way and God loves them anyway, it doesn't matter what they do, no matter what their lifestyle is. And this was what was coming into the church. 1 John 3, 7, Children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Let me stop right there, because what the Gnostics said was the body is evil, therefore Jesus cannot have a physical body, because that would make him evil. And if the body is already evil, so it doesn't matter what you do with it. And this is why sin is a major issue in this letter. From the very first chapter all the way through, he talks about sin. People who claim to have no sin, he says that they make God out to be a liar. And people who claim that there's, there's nothing out there wrong for them, they don't hear the truth. So he's, he's telling them this, whoever is born of God does not just keep sinning because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning. They, they will not go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. Go down to the first words in chapter 4. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Watch this. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is what? Every, the whole idea was that Jesus could not have been a real person because the body is basically evil. Do you realize Christianity is one of the few religions of the world that elevates the value of the human body? So much so to the point that Paul says to the people in Corinth that he not only saved your soul, 
He saved your body for his habitation. That your body is what? The temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. That's to elevate the body. There's never a place where the soma, the body, as it is, is defined as basically evil. We have a sin nature in us that is, has an affinity to sin and to break the rules. But the physical body, God created it for his habitation. And he's telling them, Jesus is speaking the words to John and the apostles, and here's John telling this congregation what they need to go back to to put their faith in. John is ra- what John is basically doing here with his letters, raising up leaders to say, you know, he's, he's way up in age. He knows he doesn't have much time left, so he's writing this to put it in the hands of other people. And one of the leaders that John influences is a man named Polycarp. Polycarp lived to be 86 years of age and was martyred around 144 A.D. So he was a young man when he had an association with John the Apostle. And John discipled him. Polycarp discipled Irenaeus. And Irenaeus was the one who gave us almost all the information about all of this because hardly any of Polycarp's writings survived. But Irenaeus would make references to them and his writings survived. And then as John identified any teaching that takes away from the truth, Polycarp identified it. John identifies what? What did John battle? What was the error John battled? Gnosticism. When Polycarp came along, there was a guy named Marcion that showed up 10 years before Polycarp was martyred. And Marcion came up with this dualistic idea. And uh, he declared that the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament was not the God of the New Testament, so he just dismissed the Old Testament. Now, you know there's people today who say that. (laughs) That the God of the Old Testament just says, Looks like he's on edge. <laughs> and he's ready to judge you and disquest you. And there's, there's no mercy and love in, in the God of the Old Testament. And Marcion came along and said, that's true. So the only the legitimate scriptures we have are the Gospels and 10 of Paul's letters. And Polycarp challenged that. Why do you think Polycarp challenged that? Because he was discipled by John. He knew that wasn't true. And the story goes that Polycarp ran in to Marcion on the streets of Rome. And they knew about each other, and they knew each other, and they knew they were battling for the ears of people. And Polycarp, assuredly, it is purported that he said to him, Do you know me? I know you. You're the firstborn of Satan. It almost, it almost like it's in Polycarp's mind here, and John say, "That's Antichrist. That's Antichrist. If it's not of truth, that must be Antichrist." And here it goes from Polycarp to Irenaeus, and then I'm going to take you to one more person, and we'll finish up. Athanasius. You know when uh, Josh brought the need for the Africa trip, the the missions trip for Chi Alpha up two or three Sundays ago, and he showed a, a video, Project 222. 
and it's from 2 Timothy 2, 2. It's, it's probably the, well, the mission verse, right, of Chi Alpha? And uh, it reads like this. I'll, I'll read it to you again. The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. The reason why the church survived in the second and third century is because of the Timothy 2.2. The, the, the apostles discipled the leaders, and they discipled leaders, and they discipled leaders, and every time error tried to show up in the church, there was a trained or trained team of scholars in the Bible that said, no way. No way does that, will we embrace that. And in Athanasius' day, it was Arianism. And Arianism was started by Arius, who said that, that if Jesus was, if the Son was begotten of the Father, it meant that Jesus had a beginning in existence. And therefore, there was a time when Jesus or the Son was not. And it started sweeping through the churches. And Athanasius was one of those who stood up and said, no, 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 no. The Son is eternal just with the Father. They're not like, like substance. They're the same substance. And it was an attack on salvation, really, because if the only way, do you realize the only way the cross is effective for us is that Jesus is totally human, representing us, and totally God providing redemption. If, if you change that balance at all, there's no salvation. If he's not human, then he's not identified with us. And the atonement doesn't work. But here's Athanasius, and, and you, ought to, you ought to just pull him up sometimes or read about him, because his enemies, the people who opposed him, called him the black dwarf because he was from northern Africa. And here's this short, dark-skinned scholar standing up to this avalanche of error. And he got so divisive, you've probably heard of the council in Nicaea, it got so divisive, the competing interest for the churches between Arius and Athanasius, that Constantine called for the council of Nicaea 1,800 bishops were invited, and 300 showed up because most of them didn't want to get involved. And when it was all said and done, that little short man from Alexandria, Egypt, convinced the ones that was there that truth was what they had learned all through their years, and that Arius was a heretic. And that was a settled verdict. Arius was exiled, his teachings was opposed, and you think all is well, right? Well, over the course of Athanasius' 45 years as a pastor, he spent 17 years himself in exile because Arius would get out of exile, come back and start it all up, and then they'd send Athanasius off to exile. And this battle raged on for a number of years. And it came about that Athanasius and truth won out. Now, I want to tell you, Brandon, you can come to the platform. This 
has never went away. The Trinity that we believe in, we, we just, in this song, this is why the Nicene Creed came out, is what do we believe? This is the standard of what we believe. And they charted out, we believe in God the Father, we believe in Christ the Son, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Three in one, the Trinity. I've sat right here in this building with just me and another person, not in a debate, but kind of a debate, over this whole idea of Trinity. This person just couldn't wrap his mind around it, and he didn't believe in it, and he believed it was just a teaching of the Catholic Church, and that it was, it was just conditioned on as a result of the Catholic Church and its power. And I remember asking him this. It's called the Jesus Only Group. And they don't baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit because they don't believe in the Trinity. They baptize you in the name of Jesus only. I said, do, do you think when Mary was conceived with the Son of God in her womb that he was truly God at that point of conception? He says, yes. I says, then who is running heaven if there's no Father and there's no Holy Spirit? Is Jesus, if he's all three of them, how does that work? And how at his baptism does a voice speak from heaven saying, this is my Son in whom I please, and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and lands on his shoulder. But yet, Arianism has never went away. And this is why I share this with you. Because I want you to brace yourself for what's ahead. Because the church, we, the people of God, are going to be challenged with great debates. And here's what we got to do. If you'll stand with me. We got to be willing to say whatever the cost is, I'm going to plant my feet on truth and I refuse to budge from it. This idea of Gnosticism is so prevalent in atheism that atheist professors in some of the colleges and universities try to convince their students that Gnosticism was the original Christianity to try to gut it of its truth so that it will be easier to attack the teachings of Jesus and the reality that he is the Son of God. I don't know how salvation works, but I know it works. You know, one of, one of, my, one of my greatest privileges was voting in the presidential election in 1972. Barely missed 68. I was 17. Could not vote. But in 72, I went in and pulled the lever. That's something you don't do anymore. Pulled the lever. And I pulled it for Richard Nixon. <laughs> About two years later, he's on a helicopter doing this, leaving the Oval Office under threat of impeachment. I said, the, the first president I get to vote on. But in that group, in that John Dean and that drama. I want to tell you something. You haven't seen anything on Fox in your lifetime that comes close to what was going on with the Watergate scandal. They, 
Nothing they have today touches it. It was drama, high drama. And there was Chuck Colson, Nixon's hatchet man, who was caught with an FBI confidential file of a target that they were going to slander. And he went to prison for it. But as he was getting ready to go to prison, some Christian, if you want, if you want to read his story, it's in a book called Born Again by Chuck Colson. These guys came to him and started witnessing this Ivy League-trained, ruthless attorney, Chuck Colson. Somebody gave him C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, and he started reading it. He sat in the driveway of the car and put his head on his steering wheel and wept because he realized that Jesus was his only hope and was gloriously saved before he headed to prison. Nobody in the media believed it. (laughs) Well, he just got jailhouse religion. As soon as they let him have a lighter sense, it's going to be all over with. And he went on to prison. And when he got out, Richard Nixon called him and said, I'll help you try to find work somewhere because his legal degree, he was no longer able to ever get his law degree back or his law practice back, Chuck Colson. He said, I can help you with with a place in business somewhere. And Colson paused, and Nixon says, and I hope you're not planning on making this prison stuff a ministry. That's exactly what he did. Spent the rest of his life with Prison International Fellowship. Totally changed. I don't know how salvation works, but I know it works. Bow your heads with me. Lord, if there's anyone here that's wrestling with doubt, that's struggling with some of the debates that's all around us, that's making its way into the ranks of your church, I pray today that the voice of your spirit would speak so clearly to them the truth, the truth that separates them from that struggle and that relieves them from the pressure of them trying to figure it out. I'm praying for people in this room who are trying to trust you, but they're struggling to. I pray, Lord, that today would be a step forward for them, a step of putting their hands to your promise with a new commitment. Lord, I'm not going to let go of your truth. No matter how strong the voices in my own head and the voices outside of me are suggesting otherwise, I want to put my feet on your truth and be determined to stand there. I know this is an unusual altar call But if that's you, I want you to step out. If you're struggling to trust him, things are coming against your mind. Voices outside of you are coming against your thinking. And you feel like, am I I right? Is Is this true? Is this true? Can I really trust this? And I'm gonna, we're going to pray with you. We're going to pray for you because God doesn't want you in this struggle. 
He doesn't want you weak in the struggle. We're going to face things, but he doesn't want us to be weak. So just come and pray and come and surround people with prayer. And if, you, if you're dealing with things in your own life that you feel like you're shaky, you don't know if you're going to stand, stand the pressure and stand the storm. Thank you, Lord. If you need prayer, you can come.